0: Often people who are struggling with addiction are sort of relegated to the fringes of society. Nobody wants to deal with them. And they look at them like, oh, you're, you know, you are shameful. How come you're doing this? Why can't you just stop and pull your life together? And it's not like that. They're struggling with this illness that takes over their behavior.
1: Welcome to the podcast Breaking Free, produced by the Cook County Sheriff's Office. The next several episodes of this podcast are designed to help provide real answers for family and friends who are struggling to help someone they love with a substance use disorder. They are on the front lines of the opioid crisis, and they grapple every day with tough questions about when and how to confront their loved one, how to get them into treatment, and in some cases, whether it is best to walk away. Popular culture has us believe in a particular series of events that should take place. It starts with a confrontational intervention followed by ultimatums, followed by a long stint at an inpatient rehab facility. But there is lots of disagreement over this approach in the medical community. In this installment, we pick apart the popular culture beliefs with Dr. Jonathan Adelstein and discuss how friends and family can effectively help a loved one toward recovery. Dr. Adelstein is an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences with Northwestern Medicine. He specializes in addiction psychiatry, and has previously worked as a consultant for treatment centers in the Chicago area. We begin this conversation with Dr. Adelstein on a critical point. Is opioid addiction a disease?
0: Yeah, we'll get right into it. And this is a hard thing to understand because of how drugs take over the brain. And we like to think of ourselves as creatures with free will and autonomy, and we are. But to some degree, our behavior is governed by a reward system the chemical that mediates reward in our brain primarily is dopamine. And this is the chemical that says this is important, right? This activity matters. So food, eating and drinking, sex, love, accomplishment. When you do these things, your brain says, Hey, this is important do this again. And we're talking about good things, but it works for bad, bad things as well. Drugs of misuse. And I, it's a complicated word because abuse has a little bit of a stigma to it, uh, but I'll probably use it anyway. So apologies. But drugs of misuse flood the brain with dopamine. So when you use a drug, your brain says, hey, this is really important. More important than anything else. So much so that it influences you to seek this out above all other things, right? Food, sex, sleep, etc. And you can see this in animal models and Humans have more capacity to fight it than animals do, but they're still uh, beholden to dopamine to some degree. And different people have varying amounts of vulnerability to this. So this drug takes over your brain, and we can talk about the different evidence for this in brain studies. We can get into that. Um, but the bottom line is it's true you do have to make the choice to use drugs in the first place. But many, many people use drugs, and not everybody gets addicted.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: there is an inherent vulnerability to this sort of dopamine flooding, uh, this hijacking of our executive function that happens in some people.
1: So some people are more likely to become addicted than others. Is, is that depending on their genes or their life experience? We're still figuring that out. Genes are certainly important. Um, environment plays
0: a big role. Exposure. Uh, and it seems like disenfranchisement often leads to this. Uh, There's some theories about attachment styles. Um, There are lots of, we don't know more than we know, I'll say that. But uh, yeah, there are certain factors which place people at higher
1: risk than others. If we know that addiction is a disease that impacts behavior, and, and therefore the person has a loss of control over this, how does that play into how we approach that person about treatment? And what that treatment looks like.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that gets really tricky. Um, I'd say the most important thing to understand that this is not a moral failing, right? These are not often people who are struggling with addiction are sort of relegated to the fringes of society. Nobody wants to deal with them. And they look at them like, oh, you're, you know, you are shameful. How come you're doing this? Why can't you just stop and pull your life together? And it's not like that. They are struggling with this illness that takes over their behavior. Understanding that, I think, goes a long way towards um, enhancing sympathy and empathy for what this is doing to people. Uh, The problem is that because it's such a complex, insidious uh, illness, the treatment's really difficult, and it's long, and we don't understand it well enough yet, and it involves, to some degree, at least temporarily, working to help regulate someone's behavior, which is really hard to do without controlling their life, which obviously we don't want to do.
1: I would think that the popular culture belief into how to treat this is you set up an intervention, you have ultimatums, you know, you do this or else, you are out of the house, we are done. Then that person is supposed to go into inpatient rehab for at least 30 days. And when they get out, they are supposed to stay sober, get a job, go to AA meetings, etc. I think that is what people think of in terms of how to approach this, you know, the boxes to check off. Is that the reality though? Is that how we should think about the steps to take?
0: I'm really glad you asked that because that is the popular perception. We have TV shows like Intervention, right? That are great television because they're very emotional and intense and dramatic. But the very simple answer to your question is no, that is not how it should be done. The evidence overwhelmingly shows that those sorts of interventions um, in the classic sense where you've got a family together that says, I love you, but you need to stop this and you have to go, that doesn't work. The reason being is that when it's done like that, it can be very shaming. Mm -hmm. And as we were talking about before, most people who are using don't want to continue using. They already feel ashamed. Mm -hmm. They can't stop. They can't control their behavior. And that feels horrible. They have lost their autonomy and very often their dignity, and they're doing things to get drugs they don't want to do. So then when their support system comes to them and says, you have to do this, it feels even worse, and they feel like they don't have support. The challenge is doing this properly is really, really difficult, very delicate, and must be approached really gingerly, and it's hard to do. There's a style of interviewing called motivational interviewing. And the idea behind it is that when you meet with a patient in a clinical context, you got to meet them where they are. So if somebody comes to me and says, you know, I'm using six bags of heroin a day, and I say, you got to stop, you're going to die, you're going to get into all sorts of problems, you're going to lose your job, etc., they're going to say, well, that doctor just made me feel bad about myself, he doesn't know what he's talking about, and they're going to leave my office and keep using The challenge and the way to approach that effectively is to try and elicit, to take a non-judgmental stance, to not have your own goals, which is really hard to do, because of course, we all want people to get better, and to figure out what that person's goals are. Where are they in their process of wanting to stop? And to try and understand what their goals for the future are. So if you have a family member who's struggling, and you know that they want to write a book, for instance, uh, but they can't because they're spending all day looking for heroin and getting high and recovering from getting high. If you can create that discrepancy in their mind between, hey, I want to write a book, but I can't do that because I can't, I don't have the time or the energy or the the you know wherewithal because of my drug addiction. If you can create that discrepancy. You can plant the seed and help them realize, oh, I need to get this under control. I need to get help for this first before I can accomplish my goals. And if you can take that approach with family members, very patiently help them understand that they're not meeting their own goals rather than your goals for them, it can go a long way towards encouraging them to treatment. But that takes time and energy and is very hard when it's loaded with love and emotion and frustration and all the other things that happen in families.
1: What if there is not the time for that? It does seem hard to tell someone, let's say it's uh, your son or daughter, how do you just kind of wait for them to come around to wanting treatment and prodding them in positive ways when oftentimes it seems like such a crisis?
0: Yeah, it's very difficult. And often it is a crisis. Often it's an emergency. Uh, In which case, sometimes you do have to be more uh, insistent, more urgent. Uh, And when to do that is a really tough thing to know. And there are emergency services, and we can, you know, worst case, if somebody's really in an acutely dangerous situation, call 911. They will go to the hospital. You cannot involuntarily treat somebody for substance use, but... Um, what the hospital can do is make sure somebody's safe once they've recovered. If they're not wanting more treatment, there's really nothing that can be done and they'll go back to the same environment. And then a family feels even more desperate because it's really hard to know what to do then. Um, The best advice I can give you at this point, things are changing. We're getting better as a society about being more educated and having more services available. But at this point, Having support for yourself and knowing that, although it can feel very isolating to have a family member who is struggling, very much not alone, that this crosses boundaries. Addiction occurs in all socioeconomic classes, all races, all religions, etc. cetera. Uh, and there are lots of support groups available for families that can help you understand this isn't your fault. Uh you're not alone. There are other people going through this and your patients really will pay off. You are doing a good thing by trying to help this person survive until they want this for
1: themselves. So once you have the person interested in treatment, what are you asking them to do? Are, are you asking them to go to an inpatient facility or to the hospital?
0: That's a really good question too. And, um, one thing we're very good at in addiction treatment is stratifying what level of care somebody needs based on certain criteria. So how much are they using? What's their withdrawal picture like? Do they have medical illness that's complicating this? What's their recovery environment? Once they get better, what sort of environment are they living in? Are they homeless? Um, you know, Do they have supportive family? Based on these factors, we can decide what level of treatment is appropriate. some people with less severe addiction may be able to be managed just by a doctor seeing them in a clinic every so often. Other people may need an inpatient hospital detox, followed by a 30-day rehab, followed by an outpatient program, followed by then less frequent clinic visits. They may relapse. Uh, So when we're talking about get them this thing, the most important thing is getting them wanting help to the point where they want that. Then any point at which they can access help is a good thing and the system is very disorganized now so that's not easy to do but if they can access that through calling a doctor through calling any one of several 800 number helplines that are available that you can quickly google uh, and find i don't have them off the top of my head but they are easy to find Um, getting them into an emergency room uh, calling rehabs and most of these places will have somebody available sometimes not at first, but with a little bit of persistence, who can talk you through the right place to go. Even a primary care doctor, uh, if you mention you're struggling with, with this, can help refer you to an appropriate level of care.
1: If it was my son or daughter and they were in their teens, should I take them to my doctor, my, my general practitioner, or is there a special doctor or a special type of counselor I should be looking for? I think um,
0: taking the burden off of you, the hypothetical person in that question, uh, anybody who is in this sort of healthcare profession, even law enforcement, um, anyone who, any level of professionalism you can interface with can help get you to the right person. It should not be the family's responsibility to try and find that person, just anybody. So if it's your teenage son or daughter, yeah, call your doctor uh, at that point. And obviously there are privacy concerns here, but um, they can at least help you find the resources necessary and the right person to call.
1: Is it reasonable to expect the person who is addicted to navigate this system?
0: No, it isn't. Uh, And that's a real challenge. Uh, Our healthcare system is big and messy. Complicated, disorganized, uh, and it's hard for even the most sophisticated person to navigate it. And that's a real problem that we need to fix and we're working on, but it is a work in progress. Uh, and often, because of the stigma around addiction, people who are struggling are left to fend for themselves. It's hard to care for somebody for, with addiction, it's hard to have them in your house, it's hard to love them. It's hard to help them, especially when they're not ready to accept that help. Uh, So often they're left to their own devices, and then, yeah, it is very difficult for them to navigate the system. That also brings up a complicated question about at what point when you have a family member who is doing dangerous things in your house, do you say, okay, you can't live here anymore. You kick them out. And sometimes those sorts of hard limits are necessary and they are helpful because, uh, at a certain point, um, this gets really complicated. People need to see that, um, what's happening does have consequences. And I try and say that in the least blaming way possible because it's nobody's fault Knowing when to do that is really tough, though. And that's why support groups, professionals, etc., can help talk you through what's going on, tell me all the relevant factors, will ask you the necessary questions to help you know, okay, here's what I have to do at this time. Here's how I can help this person.
1: That is something I wanted to get into. When, when we are talking about the popular culture belief, can you be an enabler? Is that still something that is thought of as bad? to continue to enable someone to use, you know, to let them live in your house and continue to use? Uh,
0: I, I wouldn't call somebody an enabler, and I, I'm really careful not to use that word, because again, it places blame, and it's so tempting to place blame here because they're tricky issues, and we want to simplify it and say, hey, this is someone's fault. Oh, it's the family's fault. Oh, it's the person's fault. Oh, it's the boss's fault for firing, you know, whatever it is. We want to make this easy to wrap our minds around, and it isn't. Uh, And there isn't an easy way to say, you know, yes, you should stop giving them money. You should kick them out. If you don't stop, I'm going to, you know, you can't live here anymore. Or no, you know, you can keep doing whatever you need to do until you're ready. There isn't an easy answer around that. And it takes a village Uh, which is another reason why treatment's complicated because it's expensive. It takes a lot of resources. So I think if you're confused about that, if you're wondering, am I enabling this person by continuing to give them a place to live and feeding them and giving them money and um, helping them survive, should I be saying, no, either you get treatment or you get out of my house? It's usually not that black and white. But if you're wondering about that, that's when it's time to start talking to somebody yourself. And not about the person you're trying to help yet, but talking to your own doctor, talking to a counselor, talking to a friend, helping you understand where are we in this process and what's the best thing for this person.
1: There's going to be emotional support from a friend, but there may be differing opinions from different friends about what to do. Uh, I I think what we are seeing is this is an incredibly difficult field to navigate. I've seen there are a lot of scams out there. The field is ever-changing. How can someone educate themselves on this? Is there a specific type of doctor or counselor someone should look for? Do you go to an Al-Anon meeting?
0: So um, the short answer is yes. Again, I'm tempted to say any help you can get is good help. That is not always true, though. You're right. There are a lot of scams out there. There are some predatory rehabs. Um, There are some... um, Because we sort of open the floodgates and want to get all the help we can, there are some people practicing in this field who do not have... um, uh, They have some sort of limited qualifications, but they really don't know what they're doing. That's also a tricky issue because there isn't a phone book you can look up and find somebody who's qualified. Uh, And addiction psychiatrists are few and far between. I think there are something like 3,000 of us in the country. And obviously, if you know someone... Um, or you have the means to access that resource, great. Definitely start at the top. But that's not true for many people. Um, and I would start with hunting around at the largest academic medical center you can. If you can't find those resources, they sort of local level, start big. Uh, and they can help direct you to a more reputable place. Where you can get into trouble is the sort of direct-to-consumer advertising that happens sometimes. Um, places that, uh, Florida's infamous for this, and I, I hate to demonize Florida, but they do exist a lot in Florida, um, rehabs that will prey on insurance. And I don't want to scare people off from treatment because it, it's so important to get help, but you are right. There are some places that are not reputable Uh, and that really don't know what they're doing. So I would say start with an institution or an organization you trust. You know, if you're in Chicago, Northwestern, Rush, uh, University of Chicago, um, UIC, any sort of big institution that you know you've gotten good help from before can help direct you.
1: Following that model, between the popular culture understanding and, and what reality is, once you work with someone to get them wanting treatment, and they get into treatment, whatever level that may be, wh- what can we expect afterwards? What, what is the prognosis for someone with opioid use disorder?
0: Yeah, it's complicated. It depends a lot on severity. Um, one thing that can help enormously is medication-assisted treatment. Um, so most people have probably heard of methadone and suboxone, um, and also Vivitrol, which are the main medications we use to treat obese use disorder. And the evidence speaks for itself. These medications work. They keep people alive.
1: Could you briefly walk through like what each one is,
0: just real, real briefly? Yeah. Uh, methadone is the oldest. It has to be distributed by a federally licensed methadone clinic. Uh, it's a full agonist opioid. Uh, And it is, um, uh, we call it opiate substitution treatment, uh, but that very much brings up these ideas of, oh, I'm replacing one drug for another, which is not true. Methadone is safe. It is regulated. Uh, We know a lot about the long-term consequences, and they are minimal, whereas heroin, very different. Uh, So it's not replacing one drug for another, but it is similar pharmacologically in some senses to an opioid Uh, Suboxone is a partial opioid agonist and this gets the pharmacology gets very complicated here Um, but the main difference is that Suboxone can be distributed in the clinic uh, such as a hospital or an outpatient even a private practice doctor can do that. Uh, Vivitrol uh, the other name for that is naloxone it comes in both a pill and a long-acting injectable form is an opiate antagonist it blocks opioid receptors People take it, they can't get high. Which drug you use in which circumstance depends a lot on preference, depends on medical circumstances, depends on availability. Uh, and that, that's a whole nother question.
1: Being on one of these three medications, is, is that the standard protocol to incorporate that into treatment now?
0: It is. Uh, not all places use it, which is surprising to me. And there are some recovery homes, for instance, that still don't even allow people to be on mat, which frankly is absurd. These places are living in the past because overwhelmingly we can show not only are these drugs safe, excuse me, I should say these medications are safe, but they work. They keep people alive, as I was saying. So absolutely, this is the standard of treatment, but it's not the only thing that matters because as we were talking about before, behavior is so regulated by dopamine that you need a lot of counseling, a lot of behavioral support, a lot of sort of discussions about triggering environments, how to restructure your life to help avoid um, those places and to avoid cravings uh, and to help get you the support you need to get your life back where you want it to be.
1: Can you briefly describe how do counseling and medication work together? Are are they treating two different things? Great question. Um, One thing I really, so there's a study I really like talking about
0: because a question we get a lot is, how long do I need to be in treatment? You know, when am I cured of this? And the short answer to that is addiction's is a chronic illness, so you're never really cured of it. But uh, when you look at uh, functional imaging studies, so MRI studies of people who uh, are using versus people with an addiction who are sober, uh, you can look at blood flow in areas of the brain involved in judgment. An executive function, and there's less blood flow when people are using in those areas than when they're sober. So we don't totally... I mean, this is, again, it's a little anthropomorphic, and wavy uh, Basically, their um, judgment centers are not working as well when they're using. And until it normalizes, until they start to get the same amount of blood flow as what we would say, you know, healthy controls, people without a substance use disorder that takes around two years on average. So the point of an inpatient treatment at first is really to control their environment. You can't get access to the substance. And, uh, additionally, you're getting around the clock treatment, counseling peer support medications in a safe environment. Uh, and then, you know, if I could, if it were practical and insur- insurance would pay for it, uh, if we could keep people in a rehab environment for two years, that'd be great. Obviously, that's not practical for many reasons. Uh, so you do your best to control the environment. Medications can certainly help with that. Um, Vivitrol, for instance, if you can't get high, then as long as you're taking that medication, uh, you're basically sober. In um, that, I mean, you could use, but you're not going to get anything out of that. So people don't use. Um, uh, other medications also work on cravings for the drug so that even when you're in a triggering environment, for instance, if you're taking Suboxone, you don't have any desire to use because this medication is satisfying that
1: urge. You brought up two things I would like to touch on. One, you said two years. Is that two years to regain stability from entering treatment? But but you also said chronic illness. Can you break that down a little bit more? I, I think those are relevant and powerful facts.
0: Yeah, uh, they are powerful. And I, I wanna be careful about being too specific there because mm-hmm. on a population level, an average sense, two years is the case, but um, individuals vary greatly in the severity of their addiction and how long they take to recover. So it may be two years for some people. It may be a lifetime for others. And the medications that we use to treat opioid use disorder are by and large very safe, uh, even over the long term. And if somebody needs to be in treatment for the rest of of their lives, that's okay. There are many chronic illnesses. The best analog, I think, to um, a substance use disorder is diabetes, Uh, chronic treatment, and that's okay. We're keeping people alive, we're keeping people healthy, and we're allowing them to live their lives, to work, to love, to be with family, to um, have a place to live, and that's great. So it is a chronic illness, um, one, in terms of the uh, duration of time for people to recover uh, varies from person to person, but also because you will always have that vulnerability. That even people who recover in two years or sooner, that they find they don't need I put that in, in air quotes. They don't need the medication. Their cravings are uh, modest enough that they feel they can manage them. They're not relapsing. Uh, even in those people, they will always be vulnerable to relapse. So if you put them you know, back on the street where they used to use, if you show them needles, uh, if they have a acute, a very acute stressor that they feel overwhelmed and they don't know how to cope without the substance, they can relapse just as quickly. So that vulnerability that happens in addiction—that's the chronic thing that lasts a lifetime.
1: So, if I have a son or daughter or a loved one who is addicted to heroin, should should I assume this is going to be a lifelong battle?
0: They will always be vulnerable to relapse. Uh, with treatment, they won't necessarily be using lifelong. That is the um, again the. Overwhelmingly, when people are getting medication assisted treatment, when they're in treatment, uh, they do better. They stop using all of their lifestyle factors that we measure improve. But it is a chronic relapsing illness. So there's always the risk that they will relapse. Like with any chronic illness, it needs chronic management. Uh, You know, how much depends on the severity. But if you have a teenage son or daughter who's using, uh, it may very well be the case that they need, they will for the rest of their lives need to check in with a doctor, you know, once every couple of months, even long after they're sober and say, hey, I'm still doing well.
1: So there is always going to be the risk of getting that phone call that they relapsed or are in jail or worse? It is.
0: That's a really upsetting thing for a lot of families to hear. There is always that risk. It is a lifelong illness. It cannot be cured but it can be treated and it can be managed like any illness.
1: So, what are the odds of success? Do 30% of people who get treatment go on to live healthy lives? Is it 50%? Is it higher?
0: Yeah, that's a really tricky question. And um, we just don't know, uh, is the short answer. Um, you do know that the, the risk of relapse uh, off medication for severe um, opioid use disorder is something like 90 or 95%, is why the medications are so important. Um, but who has what chance of lifelong sobriety versus relapse? We don't know.
1: I would assume having family support and support networks would increase those odds.
0: Definitely family support, uh, professional support, um, having a place to live, working, having structure in your life, uh, managing medical illnesses. These are all things that, um, are hard for all of us. And are especially hard when you are in the throes of addiction. So um, that's one of the reasons all the psychosocial supports that um, that we also do in treatment are helpful.
1: When someone gets breast cancer, there are lots of medical professionals that can treat that. There is a standard protocol that has been developed over decades that says... If it is this type and at this stage, you do so many months of a certain type of chemo and so many weeks of radiation, you know, there's a, a plan on the shelf, depending on the cancer. But it seems that for this, there is not a real vetted protocol like cancer. While there are some general items to consider, medication-assisted treatment, counseling, the protocol isn't as clearly defined yet.
0: Um, there isn't as much of an algorithm, certainly as there is in cancer treatment. Uh, we're not as good at it yet. And we don't have, we have some of those systems in place. As I was talking about before, we have, we're very good at knowing what level of care somebody needs to go into based on where they are, but how long they need to be in treatment, um, you know, which particular medication, what the follow-up's going to look like, how to restructure their environment. We don't have good answers for that. And one of the reasons is that this disease Affects so many parts of your life, your behavior, your um, it has social consequences, professional. It, it's really hard to develop an algorithm about those things. But I think more importantly, one of the reasons why there isn't as much research, uh, research funding, um, people working on this, we're not as good at it. One of the reasons is that uh, substance use upsets us Um, and i say us not to distinguish us versus them it upsets everyone but it's hard as a provider to not know how to help somebody and in medicine in social work in law enforcement uh in ideally i hope most uh political and sort of institutional systems people go into it because they want to help they want to do something right And sometimes you can't in substance use treatment. And that feels bad to us. It's scary. It's upsetting. And we want to just say, oh, no, I mean, this is, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with this because it makes me feel bad. And there's the practical concerns too, that it's expensive and it costs money to treat people and it's hard. But um, I think that's uh, because this is so upsetting to everyone, the people who are struggling and the people who are trying to help, I think what we have to do is focus on the fact that we're trying and not always on the fact that whether or not we succeed. Uh, That is, it's, it's very easy in, not easy, it's simpler in cancer treatment to know if you succeeded or not. Life or death, it's much more black and white is the tumor there or isn't it? Addiction is much more complex uh, in the sense that it affects lots of other variables and it's not always so easy to know if and when you're succeeding, but we're trying. At this point, and that's the hope that I have, is I see so many people who are uh, working for this and are working on the process and are thinking about it and are wanting to help in spite of all the pain and fear and anger and sadness. Uh, and that's really inspiring.
1: To find treatment options in Illinois, please call 833-234-6343 or visit helplineil.org. For treatment options across the United States, please call 1-800-662-HELP or one 800 662 For information on this podcast and other efforts in Cook County, please visit cookcountysheriff.org. Thank you for listening to this installment of Breaking Free. For episodes, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Play.